The American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. This is Jacob Yasha Schneider, editor of the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine, welcoming you to the American Thoracic Society's podcast. I would like to introduce our editorial board member, Dr. David Kaufman, the Chief of Critical Care at Bridgeport Hospital, a teaching hospital affiliated with Yale University. His interests include sepsis, acute lung injury, and septic shock. Welcome, Dr. Kaufman. Thanks, Yasha. Today, I'm going to be speaking with Professor Ron Coleman of the University of Pennsylvania about his article, Topographical Continuity of Bacterial Populations in the Healthy Respiratory Tract, which appears in the October 15th edition of the Blue Journal. Dr. Coleman is Professor of Medicine in the Pulmonary, Allergy, and Critical Care Division at the University of Pennsylvania and Professor of Microbiology. His long-standing research interest has been the molecular pathogenesis of HIV infection, and he has published widely on viral mechanisms of target cell entry, tropism, and pathogenesis. Two years ago, he initiated a new project in collaboration with Dr. Rick Bushman to apply newly emerging molecular microbiology and microbiomic tools to studies of the lower respiratory tract. In addition, I will be speaking with Dr. Sanjay Sethi. Dr. Sethi is professor in the Department of Medicine at the University of Buffalo and at the State University of New York, where he also completed a fellowship in pulmonary and critical care medicine. He is the chief of the Division of Pulmonary Critical Care and Sleep Medicine at the University of Buffalo and a staff physician in the Pulmonary Critical Care and Sleep Medicine Division at the Western New York Veterans Administration Healthcare System in Buffalo. Dr. Sethi's main research interests include respiratory infections and chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, focused on the specific areas of bacterial infection in COPD, epidemiology and clinical implications of antimicrobial resistance, and innate lung defense in COPD. Gentlemen, thank you. Dr. Coleman, I really found this paper fascinating. It's very different from most papers in the biomedical literature that test a specific hypothesis. I wonder if you would describe what you did, why you did it, and what you found. Sure. Well, thanks for asking. So we're interested in seeing whether new methods that have been developed to understand the microbiology of different human body habitats could be applied to the lung and how they can be best applied. So, you know, traditional microbiological analysis of the lung is limited typically by the need for a bronchoscope to pass through the upper respiratory tract. It's limited by the need to culture organisms, and so you need to know what you're looking for to focus on specific organisms rather than whole communities. And there's the whole difficulty of knowing what may have been carried forward with the bronchoscope versus what's actually in the lower respiratory tract. And so in the last few years, molecular methods have been developed that are now being widely used to understand microbial populations in other sites like the gut, the skin, the genital tract, the oral cavity, places that either have high microbial biomass or easily accessible. And what these molecular methods do is sample an entire community based upon gene sequences present within organisms that are shared by all organisms in the class. For example, all bacteria can be sampled by the 16S ribosomal RNA gene. 
and then you're able to actually tag what each bacteria is based on the sequence. So application to the lung is really more challenging because we need to go through the upper respiratory tract and we need to assume that the lung, if it's not microbe-free, that it's at least a relatively low biomass. And so this really started out as a methods paper or a methods study to apply molecular sampling to the lung. The advantages being that you can sample an entire community, you can define the proportionality of all organisms, and you don't really need to know what you're looking for. So we used an intensive sampling method with two bronchoscopes to sample the first bronchoscope, which only goes to the glottis, and then we reboot that bronchoscope, and the tip in the channel represents what's present in the upper respiratory tract and also what organisms might be brought down by the bronchoscope to the lower respiratory tract. We then go down with a second clean bronchoscope, do serial bronchoalveolar lavage in various segments and a protected specimen brush, and we look at the DNA, the microbial DNA. We quantified the DNA, we sequenced and analyzed all of the bacterial sequences present. We had something like 350,000 sequences of about 350 base pairs each. And what we found was that the bacterial populations in the lung, based on DNA copies, is much lower than in the respiratory tract, which isn't a great surprise, that the initial BAL sample has a higher quantity than subsequent samples, which we think means that there is some carryover, even with this two-scope approach, but that it can be washed out. And what we found was that when we either looked at the last BAL or the protected specimen brush done on the contralateral side after a whole series of washings, if we look at the composition of the microbial communities, they really match very closely the population of bacteria that are present on the scope that goes just to the glottis but no further. So because different bacteria won't replicate at the same rate in different environmental niches, we think this means that those are probably carried or brought down from the upper respiratory tract as transient entrance into the lung rather than being self-replicating independent populations. So what we think that this study tells us is that there really are, with these type of intensive sampling approaches, methods that you can sample the lower respiratory tract, separate what's real versus what's carryover from the upper respiratory tract, and apply these type of molecular methods to understand the microbiology of the lung. I should mention, we also asked the question, whether there are any specific organisms, bacteria, present in the lung, not present elsewhere. And what we found was in one subject, all four lung samples gave us one organism that was not present in any other samples, T. whippoli, the Whipple's disease agent. Now, we don't know whether that has any significance. It's occasionally something found in environmental samples. But the fact that it was present in the lung and in no other samples and not in any other subject, means that these are methods that you can use to actually characterize what's present in the lung and unique to the lung in an individual subject. So, Dr. Coleman, if you'd let me follow up for a second, one of the major differences between the work that you undertook and other work that's related in other areas, you mentioned the gastrointestinal tract, the oropharynx, the genital tract, is that the lung, as you mentioned in the introduction to your paper, is generally considered sterile. And so here you're really up against a different kind of methodological issue because 
other attempts to define a microbiome of a human area knew that there were common colonizers or commensal bacteria there. Here, that was an open question, and I wonder if you could elaborate a little bit on how you tried to overcome that methodological impediment. Well, you're right. The lung is really different from these other body sites that are known to have rich, normal microbial inhabitants. Now, on one hand, traditional dogma is that the lungs below the vocal cords are sterile. On the other hand, we know that the majority of people, or at least a uh, substantial proportion of people, have identifiable microaspiration if you look by a radio tracer. So there's no surprise that there might be organisms in the lung. The approaches that we took to try and differentiate what's present in the lung versus what might be carryover or what may be environmental admixture were twofold. So the first issue was using these two scopes, the two bronchoscopes, and you know I should mention that that was not an idea original to us. It was an approach that uh, I think probably uh, a decade ago Dr. Sethi published in another study based on culture-dependent methods. So using two bronchoscopes and then doing serial lavage so that cross-carryover contaminants could be washed out, and then when further decrement is not seen, you could make an assumption that that represents what's actually present. So it's a little bit different also because when working with low microbial biomass samples, as the lung is, it's important to think about environmental admixture. So bronchoscopes may be sterile, and saline that's used for lavage may be sterile microbiologically, but it doesn't mean that they're always microbial DNA-free. And so on one hand, pegging the lung samples against the upper respiratory tract, and then on the other hand, pegging the lung samples against the environmental admixture, bronchoscope, and saline microbial sequences is the way we were able to determine what's actually present within the lung versus either carryover or environmental admixture. So, Dr. Sethi, Dr. Coleman referred to some methods that you pioneered some years ago, and I wonder if you could fill us in a little bit about the background that your studies performed some years ago and how they inform how we ought to interpret Dr. Coleman's team's findings. And also, I'd like you to address, what do you think Dr. Coleman's findings mean for lung health and disease? Thanks, David, and I uh, want to emphasize the importance of this work. So our work was published about uh, six, seven years ago in, in the Blue Journal, and we were interested in comparing the microbiology in COPD patients versus controls, versus healthy, normal controls. And that was a bit before the biome era, so we uh, used traditional cultures. But we were very concerned about contamination issues, and therefore we came up with the idea of at least using two different scopes. Now, cultures are not that sensitive a method, so I think it was, you know, gave us fairly reliable data. But I think uh, when we start using these uh, extremely sensitive methods like the microbiome approach, we really have to be extremely careful about methodological issues and technical issues. And I think that's why I really want to commend this work for the thoroughness of addressing this point. There is actually already a couple of publications looking at lung microbiomes, and, uh, and essentially they were done without paying attention to this whole issue of both environmental and upper respiratory tract carryover and contamination. And if you look at those results from Dr. Coleman's, they are radically different. 
And I think the reason they're radically different is because these very important methodological issues were not addressed in the previous publications. I think this work sets the standard. This sets the benchmark. I think any you know microbiome work done with bronchoscopic sampling will have to pay this attention to detail because otherwise your findings are really confounded by upper respiratory tract contamination and carryover just because of the nature of the sampling method that we had to use. So I think this definitely informs us about what's a healthy microbiome. It kind of you know, it tells us, yes, the lung is not sterile, but works very hard to stay sterile. That's a, in a healthy lung. But I think uh, now we, we have this methodology established. This sets the background to when we start doing research, for example, or you applying microbiome methods to um, situations like, you know, very several lung diseases where there's a tremendous interest in microbiomes, including asthma, COPD, lung transplant patients, HIV patients. There's a tremendous amount of interest in applying these microbiome methodology to those diseases. I think this sets the benchmark of how to do it if you're going to do bronchoscopic sampling. So I think this is extremely crucial and extremely important piece of work because otherwise, frankly, we were putting the cart before the horse. We were jumping in to do microbiome sampling without realizing the methodological limitations that imposes because of the very nature of its extreme and sensitivity and its ability to pick up, you know, extremely low levels of bacterial biomass. Dr. Coleman, your work suggests that the oropharynx harbors on the order of 10,000 times more bacteria, or at least more bacterial DNA, than the lower respiratory tract, but that the bacterial families or types of bacteria are, are basically similar. So this seems to support the notion that what you found in the lower respiratory tract is there possibly due to microaspiration on the part of the subjects or contamination. Do you think that that's a correct interpretation of your findings? And how do you interpret your findings in light of other studies that describe microaspiration in healthy individuals? Well, we think that these data are totally compatible with microaspiration of organisms in healthy individuals. It's not a great surprise. There's a wealth of studies going back decades showing that healthy people microaspirate. And our finding that the bacterial sequences in the lower respiratory tract match that found at the glottis could mean either carryover or microaspiration. Because we do see a plateauing effect with serial washout and bronchoalveolar lavage, multiple BALs, and because we also see organisms by protected specimens brushing of the mucosa on the opposite side, after 300 mils of BAL have been carried out, we think that there really is a population of bacteria, or I should say at least bacterial DNA, present in the lower respiratory tract, that it's not entirely due to carryover, and that it's real. And the reason that we think that it's most likely microaspiration and not organisms that are independently living in the lung is that the community structure is identical. And so I mentioned this earlier, but if you sample different areas of the skin, you'll find very different communities because bacteria grow at different rates depending upon the microenvironment. And so the likelihood that organisms at the glottis and organisms at the lung are all independently replicating, yet form the same structure of communities in different environments seems unlikely. Now, what we've shown is that those organisms are present based on DNA sequences. That doesn't say whether they're alive or they're dead, that they may well not be viable organisms. 
At the same time, even if they're not viable, the presence of those organisms in the lower respiratory tract in these healthy individuals is something that the respiratory mucosa needs to deal with immunologically, and it has some implications for the fact that the lower respiratory tract, perhaps uh, sterile in a culture way, although we didn't specifically ask culture-based questions, does have interactions with the type of microbial components that can trigger immunological responses. So, Dr. Sefi, do you think that these findings in any way ought to affect the way we think about clinical pneumonia? Some people will maintain that all pneumonia is aspiration pneumonia, and others may make a distinction between an aspiration event and other kinds of pneumonia. And I wonder whether these findings at all might affect that debate. I think these findings do support the concept that most pneumonias uh, are driven by aspiration. Now, I think we have to distinguish between micro-aspiration and macro-aspiration. And I think micro-aspiration has been thought to be the mechanism. And now by showing this community uh, has been thought to be the mechanism behind most community-acquired pneumonias and even hospital-acquired pneumonias because once patients go into the uh, into a hospital, their oropharyngeal flora change, and then after that, subsequently, they become susceptible to a very different kind of microorganisms, you know, for example, Pseudomonas and Staph aureus, which initially first colonize the oropharynx and then microaspirate, and then, then they develop pneumonia. So I think it supports the fact, I mean, I really like the part of the paper where they look at the community structure and the point that Dr. Coleman made, that the community structure was very similar between the upper and lower respiratory tract samples. I think this supports the notion that mechanism of most pneumonias is driven by microaspiration. Dr. Sethi, to follow up, something that you just mentioned and something you mentioned earlier and also something that Dr. Coleman mentioned, do you think in any way that these DNA fragments that Dr. Coleman's team was able to detect using very sensitive techniques in any way conditions lung immunobiology? And how do you think this conditioning, if, if it occurs, of lung immunobiology affects disease states such as COPD, CF, lung transplant or asthma, as you mentioned before in a previous answer? So I think the healthy lung is well-equipped to deal with small loads of microorganisms, you know, so I think this kind of demonstrates that, that in the healthy lung, yes, there are small levels of microbial DNA present, and most probably this represents microaspiration, which happens on a fairly regular basis, especially at night, and then the lung deals with it extremely well. And I'm sure the same applies to inhaled microorganisms, which uh, it deals with it again in a very adequate manner. I think what changes in disease is the ability of the lung, the very complex, very redundant lung defense mechanisms that we have. You know, if you look at the list, it gets longer every day. So besides the cellular mechanisms, we have antimicrobial peptides, mucociliary clearance, alveolar macrophages, epithelial cell responses. So all of those are geared to keep the lung microbial load as low as possible. And I think when there is for disease development, what happens is these mechanisms get disrupted. And when that happens, then I think microbial load and changes in the lower airway and starts then influencing the course of the disease. CF, of course, cystic fibrosis is a classic example, which we well know is a microbial and pseudomonas-driven disease. But I think with the now the ability to look at the microbiome precisely and 
we may find that a lot of other diseases have a microbial component driving or influencing the progression. So I think things, diseases like COPD, that's the area of my interest, but even things like asthma, even uh, patients who have, you know, transplant and, you know, develop bronchiolitis obliterans, patients with HIV who develop accelerated emphysema, there are all these great examples of diseases where now with this technology, we can actually ask the question, that is the microbiome influencing progression. And so there's a lot to be learned about, I think, microbiome and lung uh, immunopathogenesis in the future from this kind of work. Dr. Coleman, what do you think the findings imply for lung immunobiology? Specifically, do you think in any way these DNA fragments may condition immune responses in the lung, and if so, how? Well, I'll echo what Dr. Sethi said. The lung is well-equipped to take care of invading microorganisms. I think what this study shows us, and I really, first I should emphasize, this was six normal healthy subjects, and so this is an introduction to questions that really need to be broadened out into larger samples. So this was really an initial approach of how we can ask these types of questions. But I think, as Dr. Sethi pointed out, what this tells us is that the presence of bacteria entering the lower respiratory tract is not simply an unusual, unique, aberrant event, but it's something that is ongoing and a chronic regular process, and that the respiratory tract mucosa needs to have been developed to take care of these events on an ongoing basis. There's a great deal of information that's been drawn from microbiome studies in other sites, for example, in the gut. The presence of bacterial organisms is a critical part of immunological education of the gut mucosa. And so what are the normal developmental processes or maintenance processes that the presence of microbial agents contribute to normal health? I think the second area set of questions that Dr. Sethi has worked on extensively and introduced in large part is these are techniques that can be applied to understanding what aberrant colonization or aberrant microbial populations might do in the setting of certain pathological states, uh, smoking, COPD, asthma. And then I think the third area that we're really interested in also, as Dr. Sethi mentioned, is how can these techniques, these approaches, be applied to pathological states, particularly uh, states where we already know that microbial agents play an important role? So if somebody has a big pneumococcal pneumonia or a pseudomonas pneumonia, there may not be an important role for molecular techniques. Standard culture-based techniques may be appropriate, although there may be uh, questions that molecular techniques can contribute perhaps individuals who have been on antibiotics, who you can't isolate organisms through culture-based methods. But then there are other more complicated pathological states, aspiration pneumonia or colonization and cystic fibrosis, where community structure may really play a role. And I think that this is a way for us to approach those. In particular, it's a way for us to approach those pathological states that may involve organisms in the lower respiratory tract that are normal inhabitants of the upper respiratory tract that are normally overlooked using culture-based methods. And because with these approaches, you can look at the proportionality of specific organisms based on their sequence representation in a population, you can actually ask questions including 
uh, questions about organisms normally present in the upper respiratory tract. That's an area that we're really excited about and working on now. How can this be applied to understanding how populations in the lower respiratory tract diverge in various pathological states, HIV infection, smoking, lung transplant, etc.? So, Dr. Coleman, you know, one thing we really lack when it comes to culture techniques is our ability to reliably culture anaerobic bacteria. And I assume that a substantial proportion of bacteria that you uncover in the microbiome were anaerobic. So I would like you to kind of elaborate and comment on the potential role of anaerobic bacteria in health and disease. Well, that's very true. A large proportion of the bacteria that are present in the upper respiratory tract and in the periglottic samples are anaerobes. And so that's a large proportion of what we find in the healthy lung. And so they clearly play an important role in the microbial population that enters into the healthy lung. The potential advantage of molecular approaches is because a whole community can be sampled in its entirety, and then the proportional representation of different organisms can be identified and compared in one community, for example, a protected specimen brush, versus another community, for example, the first bronchoscope that touched the glottis but didn't enter the lower respiratory tract. This is an approach that can be used to actually show selective outgrowth, for example, of organisms that we would not normally culture. We don't culture anaerobes because we know we're going to get a lot of anaerobes because a bronchoscope passed through the upper respiratory tract. But if you're able to ask, is a particular organism enriched in the lower respiratory tract relative to the upper respiratory tract, that then gives us the opportunity to really ask questions about what are anaerobes doing down there, what's their relationship to disease, and it also applies to even aerobic species, non-pathogenic Neisseria, for example, that are normally found in the upper respiratory tract and that we don't normally pay attention to. Today I spoke with Dr. Ron Coleman and Dr. Sanjay Sethi about the bacterial population of the respiratory tract. Specifically, we discussed that the lower respiratory tract harbors a very low biomass as detected by genetic techniques. This biomass is virtually identical to the bacterial population found in the upper respiratory tract, but much, much smaller. Thank you for listening to the Blue Journal Podcast.